And one of the things that we want, that we do, and that we're focused on in doing in our research institute there at the hospital, is to be able to provide resources, both conceptually, intellectually, as well as we hope practically, and there's a couple of things that we're working on in relation to particularly what we call a wellness profile for being able to give to GPs to be able to use a lot more efficiently. But essentially that concept of where lifestyle and everything fits in. Now, I know in a clinical practice you're getting along and do, using a lot of techniques which you've been taught, etc. But one of the things that I like to remind even my clinical colleagues at, uh, at, at Sydney Hospital, um, Sydney Adventist Hospital, is that nothing happens clinically without there first being a shift biochemically. And we really need to know what's happening behind the scenes in order to be most efficient about how we apply. So in other words, taking a, a medical science approach. Now, what I'm hoping to do this morning is give you a little bit of an insight into potentially one of what is, I think, one of the most ineffective uh, or the areas where we are actually in terms of current medicine, where we have probably the least effective impact, and that's clinically. And so if we can understand that a little bit behind, and that's dementia, still one of the top three causes of death in Australia. So if we can understand a little bit how it is produced and then see whether or not lifestyle, which of course we're privileged to have that perspective from over 150 years ago, so we are looking in the right direction, but let's look and see whether or not lifestyle might even have an impact in one of these huge areas where there's literally hundreds of millions of dollars, in fact there are billions of dollars if you include all of the drug trials, etc., that are going in trying to work out how can we stop dementia. And in fact the answer may be a lot closer than we think. So it is going to be a bit technical. It's 9.30 Sunday morning, you're all bright, you've had a great Sabbath, rested. I'm hoping you're going to be with me. You'll get feedback forms, you can just say no sorry, we didn't really like that at all. Um, and that way I can improve on it by possibly not doing it again. Um, but let's have a look. So treating, now this concept of oxidative stress, I know some of you have heard it before. I'll give a little bit more detail about that as we go through because we think that that's actually that, if you like, there's lots of things that can contribute to it, but this is probably that point, that, that, that final coalescing point in the biochemistry that we think that ultimately you end up with the changes uh, to the body. So let's have a look. Definition, this is easy. We'll go through it pretty quickly. We're getting a progressive and irreversible loss of neurons. That's not going to be a surprise to most of you. From specific regions of the brain affecting cognition. So basically, you're losing neurons. And at least in the neurodegenerative dementias, there are types of dementias where you're just getting them not functioning so well. But we're actually talking about loss of neurons themselves. And while I'm not going to show it here for time, you'll actually see you know, parts of the brain that are literally they're, they're becoming smaller and, uh, because of the fact that you get lots of neuronal loss. So with, that's what we're looking at. So there's lots of different types, vascular dementia, infectious diseases, AIDS-related dementia complex. In fact, I did a lot of work around that in my PhD. But then Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontotemporal dementia, Crookswood-Yakob, Huntington's, mitochondrial encephalopathies, etc. Lots of things actually result in this type of thing. There's no exam on this, so you can just relax and, and enjoy it. Um, but really, the dementias from a variety of those things, and I've put them essentially in order, um, although AIDS dementia complex is not, uh, not there, but certainly stroke links through into Alzheimer's, etc. Big burden in society. Over 300,000 Australians currently affected, predicted to be 900,000 by 2050. Each week there's more than 1,700 new cases of dementia, uh, about one person every six minutes. That's not bad, even in a country like Australia, which is not very big. Annual cost, 
1% of GDP. Now, I've seen figures, it just depends on who actually puts these figures out, um, up to 6.5 billion in, in associated costs. Others have talked about around 4 billion. But either way, it's a huge amount. We're spending a lot on it. And the expectation is that that's going to go up in a huge amount by not too far away, a couple of decades. If you have a look at what's causing the main cause of this, it's the Alzheimer's type dementia, but then frontotemporal dementia. And these are, there's a lot of similarities between, between these, uh, but I'll focus mostly on Alzheimer's disease. So basically the main point of all of that little bit is that dementia is a big problem, correct? And certainly for those of you in general practice, I mean, it's one of the things that your patients, particularly the older ones, are very concerned about. So they're worried about getting dementia. Uh, Alzheimer's, or as they say, old-timers disease. Uh, so up to 75% of Alzheimer's. And we know the clinical presentation, it's classic, it's one that most people know. Gradual loss of short-term memory, problems finding or speaking the right word. I mean, so far as we go down this list, it seems like most of us have got this. Um, inability to recognise subjects, forgetting how to use simple, ordinary things such as a pencil, forgetting to turn off the stove, close windows or lock doors, and mood and personality uh, disorders, depending on, ultimately, the global dementia that occurs. Uh, and look, there's great stories, but one of the best I can remember is a particular gentleman who'd been given a, a car by his, uh, his daughter. Uh, and uh, he take, took this new car, little Ford Focus, uh, and he drove it out somewhere, forgot where he was going, forgot how to get home, so he parked it, with the key still in the ignition, into somebody's driveway, and then went wandering off, not sure exactly where he was intending to wander to, but he went wandering off. Eventually, the police found him and took him home, but nobody knew where his car was. Uh, and so the daughter's going, Dad, you had a car. Where, where is the car? Well, he didn't know where the car was. Nobody could find the car, except two weeks later, the police actually found the car where the, well, the person who had owned the house that he'd driven into had must have thought that they got a Christmas present and was actually driving the car around. <laughs> now, I do wonder about the, possibly some of the morals of the person who did it, but in any case, um, this is obviously where somebody has significant cognitive impairment uh, of the Alzheimer's type. Now we're not going to go into this in too much, but I want to talk about the fact just briefly that they're what we call cholinergic neurons. Some of you will know what I mean by that. But essentially you've got these neurons and they use different... You know, when one neuron connects with the ne next one, it actually releases a little chemical that goes across this synaptic cleft and it then excites the next one and away you go. And these happen in, in fractions of a second. Now, there's many different types. You would know that in depression, the parts of the areas associated with that, then there's the serotonin bit, right? And if you're going to the feel goods, it's sort of like dopamine is one of the main ones. Uh, it's also those reward pathways for people who get hooked on things. Uh, whereas this type one, it actually uses acetylcholine. Now, you might know that one acetylcholine is also used in what we call the neuromuscular junction, so actually to activate muscles. But it's the cholinergic neurons that start to die off first. Now, the reason why I'm telling you that is that when we come to the treatments, so the current therapies, so we're losing the cholinergics. Now, does anybody know, there will be plenty of people who knows about dopamine, which one's dying off in, in, in Parkinson's disease? It's the dopaminergic neurons, yes. So, of course, you've got the dopaminergic neurons, they're dying in particular tracts. And what is the treatment for, for Parkinson's currently? Essentially trying to increase dopamine within that part of the brain. Is it actually stopping the neurons from dying? No, it's not. It's just increasing the amount of dopamine so that the neurons that are left have to work harder. It's a little bit like the Amen team. If there's not enough people actually to help them out, the people that are left work a lot harder. Most churches function that way too. 
So that's exactly the treatment therapy, but is that treatment actually stopping the Parkinson's disease? Stops the symptoms, sometimes quite effectively and for a few years, but actually doesn't stop the death of the neurons, so actually you're not preventing the, the Parkinsonians. Well, it's exactly the same with Parkinson, uh, sorry, with Alzheimer's. So these cholinesterase inhibitors, things like tacrin, etc., these are cholinesterase inhibitors. What they do is actually inhibit the enzymes that break down acetylcholine so that there's more acetylcholine available for the neurons that are left. They make those work harder. Now the trouble is that in Alzheimer's it doesn't work anywhere near as well as what it happens in, in, in Parkinson's. But that's the treatment at the moment and that was the thinking. Very limited benefit that come out of it. And there's other things that can be given because of the fact that these people will often get depressed for good reason as well as later on as associated with some death of neurons, but then the antidepressants. Notice that these again are symptomatic treatments. Now, somebody said, you know, in fact it was one of my students who said, oh, so these really do affect your memory, do they? Possibly thinking that she was going to go away and find some so that then she could improve her memory. Go, well, not quite in that way and certainly wouldn't benefit her, but in any case, um, they are symptomatic treatments. There's a reason why I'm telling you that. Many of you will know it. But it's because it's symptomatic. It's not preventing the course of the disease and in fact these are quite ineffective, relatively speaking. There is one other what we call a disease-modifying treatment which is these NMDA receptor antagonists, memantine. Everybody got very excited about them. I won't go into the mechanism but unfortunately the evidence is lacking for a benefit of memantine in mild Alzheimer's and there's meagre evidence for its efficacy in moderate Alzheimer's. And it, we know it doesn't work in, in, uh, in advanced Alzheimer's. And this is archived neurology in 2011. Basically very, very limited data to suggest that these things actually work. In fact, what's interesting is that memantine is targeting, and I don't want to go too technical here, but it's actually targeting a process which actually produces free radical damage within the neuron. All right, so when I talk about oxidative stress, this is trying to target that by this particular receptor system. This is what's called a glutamate subtype type of, of, uh, of receptor. But in any case, it's actually trying to prevent that within the neuron. Bottom line to all of this is that while the incidence of the many neurodegeneratives is increasing, basically there's no effective disease-modifying treatment and there are no cures. So at this point, Certainly as, a, as an audience which is intimately involved in treating the community, you would have to think that this is a bit of a tragedy, particularly as this is increasing and as we already know, it's actually one of the top three causes of death in Australia. And yet we've got no effective treatment, not even, really not even a symptomatic treatment, and we've got no cure at all. So this was a... Um, uh, this was a, uh, a conference, just the outcome of conference. The effort to develop disease-modifying therapy for Alzheimer's has reached a crisis. There's been a shift in thinking about the treatment of AD, away from the possibility that a single drug could ameliorate the disease. And we've thought that for years, certainly from a research point of view. But the drug companies are very keen to find one drug that can solve the problem because then, of course, you're going to prescribe it to your patients and they will make billions of dollars. Incidentally, why are they so interested in making money out of it? Do you know how much it costs to get one drug to market? Anybody have a guess? Yeah, it's exactly right. It's about a billion dollars. Um, 
absolutely phenomenal amount of money. So they're quite keen. So today there is increasing recognition that the complexity of the disease, the likelihood that multiple treatments will be needed at different phases of the disease and that treatment will require more than drugs. Fantastic admission, 2012. As soon as I read that paper, it goes straight up into my lectures. Because it's really important that students don't go away with the thinking that we're going to solve the world's problems by giving drugs. Drugs are an important element to certain acute phases of the disease, but lifestyle, particularly in one of these, is going to be one of the classics, I think, that demonstrates that this is really the best way in which we can solve this problem. So understanding Alzheimer's, let's have a look at some of the environmental risk factors. So if we think that lifestyle might do it, what are some of the risk factors associated with developing Alzheimer's? Uh, just before, um, ladies, you should be a little bit more concerned than the men, uh, because after the age of 65, you're more at risk of actually developing Alzheimer's than men. Uh, there's reasons for that, but uh, we won't go into it. So we're looking at around about uh, close to 2% of 65-year-olds, and depending on who you talk to, up to a third of 80-year-olds, and significantly more by the time you get to uh, past 80. Looking at the genetic factors, and just to throw this in there, again, nobody has to remember all of this, but there are a number of genes that have been linked to it. Most of you would know about things like APOE, and particularly the APOE4, but then there are things like presenilins and the amyloid precursor protein, and now a newer one called TREM2. These all have certain links, and we don't need to go into the biochemistry there, but look how much. Three to five percent of the cases are actually linked significantly to developing the Alzheimer's disease, which means if three to five percent, in other words, less than five percent is genetic, what's the other 95 percent? It's environmental. It's actually your choices, or, well, yours as well as others. So less than 10 percent of AD is actually uh, genetic, uh, which means that greater than 90 percent is environmental, and I've just been a little bit kind there. So I want to step from there. So we're looking at the problem, which is mostly not genetic, vast majority is actually coming from environment. So we're interested in lifestyle medicine. Lifestyle is all, all about making sure that you make the right choices in relation to your health. So we're stepping back and saying, now, what are those environmental causes? Before I go into that, I want to show you a little bit about the histopathology. So in other words, when you take a brain of somebody who's Alzheimer's, what are the key things that you see? And one of these, well, the diagnostic marker is actually the deposition of these things called beta amyloid plaques. There's also another one called neurofibrillary tangles, but we won't worry about that. But you actually see these deposition of these, and beta amyloid plaques are made up of beta amyloid plus bits of microglia, so they're, they're some of the white cells. They've got things like copper and iron sitting in the middle, and they actually generate lots of free radical damage, oxidative stress as well. Okay, but importantly, what else have we got? There's the hippocampus. Hippocampus just sits in the middle of the brain and it's really important for actually coordinating memories. I like to describe it as the kind of the librarian of the brain. So you go into a library, at least in the old days, we don't go to libraries much anymore, we just call it all online, but essentially you go to the library and you say, can you get this book for me? And so the librarian goes off and gets the book and comes back. Well that's kind of what your hippocampus does. The only trouble is, if the librarian gets tired and old, then, of course, you'll go, can I have this book? And they go, oh, I don't know. I've forgotten. Where is it? And that's a little bit like what happens in, in Alzheimer's because their hippocampus is one of the earliest parts of the brain to actually lose its function. Now, there's the hippocampus, and it's got lots of brown bits in it. That's an Alzheimer's patient. There's a control. 
So this is the hippocampus of somebody who doesn't have Alzheimer's. Notice lots of the brown bits. Doesn't really matter what they are, except that they correspond to this thing called F2 isoprostanes, which is actually free radical damage. So you hear about free radicals. Free radicals good. Free radicals are bad. Okay, as long as you get that. And this is actually because free radicals generate what we call oxidative stress. And where do those free radicals come from? I'm going to show you shortly. This is the types of them. I told you it was a little bit technical. Gets better from here, don't worry. I think, anyway. Uh, superoxide, one of the biggest ones. Uh, but then you've got peroxynitrite, hydrogen peroxide, a whole bunch of other stuff. You get them mostly from generating, here's the mitochondrion. This is what generates the energy for the, every cell in the body. And how do you generate, how does the mitochondrion get energy? Remember back to biochemistry, please, somebody. ATP, so they're making ATP, and you make ATP by breaking down what? Sugars and fats, mostly. So if you've got lots of sugars and fats, you'll get more ATP, right? Okay, that's a good idea. The trouble is that you will also generate more of, particularly this one, superoxide. Now, when you're young, you get about maybe a 2% leakage of superoxide because you don't quite get all the transfer of electrons. As you get older, you can have that leaking out as much as 10%. Now, epidemiologically, so we know that people who have lots of simple sugars and simple fats in their diets, they're more at risk of disease, right? And we'll see they're more at risk, in fact, of Alzheimer's. One of the reasons we think that's because they certainly generate more free radicals because they're putting in high calories. Yes, they're getting some ATP, but there's plenty of ATP there. They're actually generating lots more superoxide. All right? So they're actually getting lots more of this leaking out. Now, there's other reasons as well, particularly we think NADPH oxidase, but I won't go into some of the other areas. But they're generating lots more of this. So high sugars, high fats will generate more free radicals, right? Then we've got these other sources for the skin, yes, on uh, ultraviolet light, but mostly that's not a problem for most people. And then we have our antioxidants. So we want to keep them in balance. Where antioxidants will protect us, and there's things that you will have probably not heard of, glutathione peroxidase, there's lots of them. Um, but there's the non-enzymatic bits, and look at this one on the bottom. These phytochemicals, one of them is called carotenoids. Does anybody know where carotenoids come from? <laughs> yes, and that's a good part because that's actually where they, essentially they derive their name from. But all the red, green, orange, purple, in fact, you can go purple. My wife thinks I'm prejudiced now because I don't go for anything that's white. White cauliflower, like, what's the point? Um, <laughs> she tells me it's cruciferous. There are some sort of sulfated molecules in there that are good for you. But we'll, we'll, we'll tell you later on something about carotenoids. But just remember that that's one of our arsenal, this big package of things that help to protect us against the body producing free radicals. It does just by the fact that it's functioning. But we've got to be careful that we don't get these out of balance. If we do, we end up with lots of free radicals and there's all sorts of reasons why this actually ends up with imp well, decreasing your capacity to, to dilate the blood vessel and therefore uh, blood pressure, but we can't go into that today. So anyway, random cellular things, you end up with increased ageing, disease and death and that will happen no matter what the cell type and it certainly will happen in the brain. So here we're talking about 
the brain, so that's where we'll focus. So why is the brain sensitive to it? Yes, it's got these things called microglia, they're just white cells in the brain that actually can produce, when you switch on the immune system, you actually switch on lots of free radicals. Did you know that? So when you switch the immune system on, you're actually making it produce, uh, lots of part of the immune system will produce lots of free radicals. We also have lots of oxygen in the brain, and why do we call it oxidative stress? Because oxygen tends to be one of the primary contributors to this oxidative stress. Iron, the reason for that is in the hippocampus, remember I mentioned that was the little librarian, the iron is actually very high in there. Now you need the iron to do all sorts of cool stuff with electrons and things like that, but when you've got lots of it and you've got free radicals around and you've got oxygen around, you produce lots of free radicals. Yeah, well you rust the brain. Rusting is, is oxidising. Yeah, I've also got these neurotransmitters, so I mentioned acetylcholine, but also dopamine and serotonin and these... These are all, when they're broken down, they all generate free radicals. You've got lots of fatty acids in the brain. Who's heard of omega-3? Okay, good. Did you know that the brain, one of the omega-3s is called DHA, it's actually the longest one. You go ALA, which is what you get from vegetable sources. Then you break it down a few things, EPA and DHA, which produce the anti-inflammatory bits. But the DHA is the highest concentration of any of the polyunsaturated fatty acids and it's actually one of the highest, well it is the highest fatty acid concentration within the membrane of neurons. So you really need it for the brain, but also if you've got free radical activity going on, you can easily oxidise that and make it worse. Low catalase, one of the antioxidants, and then glutamate excitotoxicity, which was related to that NMDA thing. So these are the possible mechanisms. Now the good thing is, I'm not going to go through it in detail, but I just wanted to point out again, 10% genetic, 90% environmental. Now there's lots of links in here, but remember this one, systemic oxidative stress. What does that mean? Systemic is just basically the oxidative stress from the body, and it's going to have an impact on the brain. A lot of work has been done on the body because it's hard to do stuff on the brain, particularly when people are alive. Uh, and in fact, look, the really, the difficult thing in working in this area is that as when, if people do unfortunately just come to whatever it is, even an accident, something like that, the fact that oxidative damage happens immediately once the person starts to die and they start to, well, once they're dead, it's very hard to do this type of work on anybody who's not alive uh, because you would need to preserve them. That's why most of the vast majority of the work has actually been done in animals. Uh, we've done one of the first studies of its kind in, in humans. So oxidative stress in the periphery and inflammation, really important. Blood-brain barrier, very quickly. Neurons never touch, or blood vessels never touch the neurons. You've always got these little glial cells, what we call metabolic support cells, that actually grab onto the, the blood vessel as it's going past and up to the neuron, and they interface between the two. And those, they, they make a really tight, what we call, junctions around there, it's actually called the blood-brain barrier. So nothing in the blood gets into the brain except it has to go through there and gets filtered. That's why the brain is very protected and it might explain a little bit later on. Anyway, if this is disrupted, and there's lots of ways you can disrupt it, um, you'll get inflammation in the brain, free radical activity, then you get this beta amyloid plaque aggregation, you do get mitochondrial dysfunction, and again this is not a lecture on this, so or at least I won't go into it in detail, I've got to be careful. 
there's reasons why lipid homeostasis, so you taking the wrong lipids, saturated fats, trans fats, will have a significant effect on inflammation. We've shown that ourselves uh, systemically. They can impact even in the central nervous system. We have an early paper from, well, late last year. Um, yeah, I'll leave out a few things here. But you end up with basically, once you've got more of this happening, you develop the senile plaques. Ultimately, the neurodegeneration happens as a result of the development of that death of neurons. So this is not here to confuse anybody. It's just to show there's a bunch of stuff happening. And a bunch of people are looking at all sorts of things. They're looking at mitochondrial dysfunction. People are looking at blood-brain barrier disruption. They're looking at metal dyshomeostasis in the brain. There's a whole lot of reasons why all of those connect. And they connect in ways which we can influence at an environmental level. We can influence by making the right choices, behaviour. So the details, and I look at this sometimes and I watch my colleagues who are brilliant people doing all kinds of brilliant stuff, and uh, I think, you know, it's like we're looking at a car crash. And you've had the car crash, and the person slumped over the wheel, and then everybody's coming in to try and work out why did the car crash. And you've got these really brilliant guys getting down there and looking at the pedal and working out how much pressure it took for that pedal to twist just like that. It's not going to solve what actually produced it. It'll be about to tell you what did that and how much force was needed to dent the windscreen and all that kind of stuff. When really, if we step back, we could go, ah, the driver was tired, it was wet, the brakes weren't so good, the tyres weren't so good. Basically, a lot of the environmental stuff. And that's what we probably need to target. We need to be aware of this sort of stuff. And certainly we need to be aware to put it into context. And there are ways in which we can do this. So even in the car crash analogy, if we understand how all of those things work, particularly damage to the driver, it's why you can see the steering wheel has gone through and broken the sternum. And, you know, so which is why you can do stuff to, to you know, have the, you know, what do they call them? The airbags going off and that sort of thing. Well, we need to understand this in order to be able to treat these people right. And it won't be just simply going out and going to a lifestyle program for a lot of people. Some of it will be that easy in the early stages, but later on we'll need to be a little bit more uh, targeted. But we shouldn't get ourselves caught up by focusing only on some of these details. Okay, so environmental factors. These, uh, we know that age is the number one factor, and as I mentioned, it goes up after 65. Um, a little bit of stuff we published back in 2010, just looking at an increase in oxidative stress. We can see it significantly increase about after age 60. We did it in animals to begin with, and then we did it in humans. And interestingly enough, that acceleration after about the age of 60 seems to sit about right. So we're getting so much damage, and the periphery can kind of pick it up, or at least can absorb a lot of it. But by the time you get up to a certain level, now you're actually starting to damage parts of the the body, like the blood-brain barrier, as I mentioned, which now is getting a bit leaky and letting stuff go into the central nervous system. Now the central nervous system doesn't have the same capacity to be able to deal with it as what the rest of the body does. So maybe it's more vulnerable. So it may be no coincidence that the risk of developing a neurodegenerative disease begins to rise around the same time that oxidative stress appears to markedly increase in the rest of the body. It's just a hypothesis, but potentially. So what we need to try and do, we think, if this is true, that people after the age of probably 60, maybe mid-50s for some people, um, we need to be more careful about what we do and their lifestyle choices, simply because they're more at risk of damage. They can damage themselves faster 
as you get older because they don't have the same resilience. So what are the lifestyle factors for Alzheimer's disease? Okay, low baseline uh, folate, high saturated fat intake, diabetes, um, obesity. I, I almost take out obesity because <laughs> obesity is more of an indicator at a metabolic level. It's more an indicator of what people are eating. There are healthy obese people. Certainly there are healthy overweight. Sure, it's a small percentage, but I think we probably won't, don't want to just focus on weight control, otherwise we'll be going back to things like the Paleolithic diet and making con confused statements to the community, which is already happening. Uh, smoking, of course, we'd expect high midlife cholesterol, low physical activity, um, increase in these advanced glycation end products. Some of you have heard a talk that I've given previously, but the advanced glycation end products, you can get more of those from what type of foods? Fried foods. Yep, burn food. Tasty food. No, not really. But certainly the fried foods. Uh, the more fried foods you have, the more advanced glycation end products. And they do lots of stuff. If you want wrinkly skin, spend time in the sun and eat chips. Uh, it's, it's a great way of getting it. So if you're interested in ageing. Um, so the things that will reduce um, Alzheimer's, uh, high vitamin B3, uh, fruit and veggies in the diet, particularly people talk about the Mediterranean diet, high physical activity, uh, higher cognitive engagement, and the higher omega-3s in the cross-sectional studies are still equivocal. Some say yes, some say not much change. Now if you have a look at these same things in relation to their, what has been known about increasing oxidative stress, and I'm just trying to put these two together now, what we find is, in fact, the things that cause oxidative stress are the same lifestyle factors that actually cause Alzheimer's disease. So the reason why I'm putting that up there is to support the hypothesis that, and remember I said that nothing happens clinically without there first being a shift biochemically. So essentially we've got to see what is that, what's that nexus, what's that focal point for our lifestyle, and we still might be being too simplistic, but at least it's a place to start so that we can try and make sure. So when I give you a lifestyle change, and you go off and do something, if I'm only just looking at, there's plenty of people with Alzheimer's disease that have normal blood sugar control, even normal cholesterol. So if I'm just looking at cholesterol and, and glucose, I'm not going to pick up that trajectory. But maybe if I can pick up some of those damage markers, because oxidative stress produces the damage, and if you're under damage, and that's often driven by the inflammatory response, so I pick up some of the inflammatory markers, then if I can stop that and make sure that that's stopped by your lifestyle change, then I'll know that your lifestyle change has been effective. Does that make sense? Okay, so lifestyle factors increase the risk of Alzheimer's by driving peripheral oxidative stress. That's the hypothesis. So anyway, very quickly, we did a little study, limited research done in humans. We wanted to look at it. Um, this was one of my PhD students uh, uh, with the University of uh, New South Wales, uh, though full-time in our research institute. We looked at people across the age from 90, 25 to 90 years of age. We took some sample for some of their sample, the, the cerebrospinal fluid that surrounds the, the brain and spinal cord. And we looked at some of the things. We measured their oxidative inflammatory activity. We looked at across the lifespan. And then we looked to see are there any things associated with lifestyle that might be connected uh, to that being either increased or decreased. And we certainly found that oxidative stress increased. Uh, in this case, it was significantly increased over the age of 45. Um, inflammation increased with age, so we got oxidative stress going up, and as we would have expected, inflammation going up uh, again over the age of 45. 
Um, so what were the things that were connected to it? This is just a real summary of, of two papers that we published in this area. You're not going to see any of that. But essentially, that's just showing an increase in... Um, what is it, an increase in? CSF, uh, this is the ages or the advanced glycation end products, that's carboxymethylysine. So basically, if you want more ages, that's the type of thing that you would eat. Um, this one is an increase in some of the damage markers, and you can see that this, is, this here is arachidonic acid. And arachidonic acid is one of the breakdown products of the omega-6s. You might have heard people talk about omega-3 and omega-6 ratio. You also get lots of arachidonic acid. It's a pro-inflammatory signaling molecule. So you get lots of inflammation when you've got omega-6. Best way to get uh, arachidonic acid is through dairy and meat. Um, this one here is just uh, showing that uh, inflammation goes up, and one of the things we did observe, which we didn't expect to see, even one alcoholic drink a day was enough to put up the inflammatory markers. One alcoholic drink a day, it's published. There you go. Um, you can <coughs> quote it. But we didn't expect to see it, one alcoholic drink a day. It would be great to maybe do another one just around the whole sort of alcohol hypothesis that one alcoholic drink a day is good for your vasculature, one alcoholic drink a day is good for the brain, you know, you've heard of resveratrol. It's not something we can do today, but that would be a great one myth to bust. And there's good reasons why uh, we think that they do get apparent positives, uh, but for the reasons why. Now, the things that we found were good, and you can see that this is, this is an oxidative damage product. This is DHA, so one of the omega-3s, the main one that's in the brain, and you can see that significantly decreases. The higher, so, sorry, the higher you've got of DHA, the lower you've got of free radical damage. So I know I've put fish oil up there, but of course, if you've got a low omega-6 background, then you will get nice DHA from ALA, the vegetable sources. We've seen it in people, though if you've got a high omega-6 background, you can't convert your ALA very efficiently through to your EPA and DHA, and you've got to be really careful for that. If anybody wants to get tested, <coughs> we've now set up this method. We're one of the very few labs in Australia to do it. In fact, I think one of only... We might be the only... No, we're the second one. I think there's one in Queensland that does it as well. But we've been doing it for our research, and we think this is so important that we actually have now offered it to our clinicians to actually, because it's one thing that you can do to at least get your patients back to at least correcting their inflammatory markers associated with inflammatory signaling from omega-3. So at least you can get those right. Now, there will be other things that are likely to play a role, but for some people, that might be all it takes. Um, so very important. Uh, and then this is the carotenoid one. So again, we could reduce inflammation by increasing carotenoids. So the more carotenoids we had, and as we said, that's the, all the nice reds and oranges and greens and purples, uh, fruit and veggies. And particularly there was a couple in there, the alpha carotenes uh, and beta carotene and lycopene. Uh, so lycopene you're getting from things like uh, watermelon and tomatoes and, and things like that. So if you want to damage the brain, we can show you directly that this will do it even in a normal brain. If you want to protect it, this comes out and of course you know, my PhD students, not an Adventist or anything like that. This is just how the numbers worked out. It shouldn't surprise us because prophetically we've got a great foundation. Now, while the prophetically it gives us the direction to look at, we've still got to work out the detail. And that's what we're doing. So, main points there. Some foods are good for the brain. Some foods are apparently not good for the brain. Your choice. 
So what are the interactions? Well, here we've got lifestyle. Now there's a number of things here. I've just mentioned nutrition, microbial burden, certainly with our dentists and having a talk with David and others. One of the ways you can actually improve the potential for microbial burden in the body is to make sure that you have good oral hygiene because we know that it is some of the inflammatory activity going on and things like uh, uh, strep mutans and, and these kind of bugs that are growing around the teeth can end up systemically creating an inflammatory activity which actually produces some vascular damage and that can be heart disease but it can also contribute we think significantly to that continual degradation and damage occurring within the brain. Exercise we know about, alcohol, now we're not suggesting you increase alcohol there, that is, these are the bad things. Um, you know, not enough rest, high saturated fat, low nutrient foods. I'll just mention rest, just one quick, quick thing here. You're all aware that those in the healthcare professions are actually the highest, uh, you, you have a higher risk of lifestyle associated disease than the rest of the population. And one of the tragedies is, is that it's the rest component. You know, you really get kicked out in terms of the biorhythms. And uh, you don't give the body enough time to rest and repair. And the biochemistry in the morning, what's actually switched on to do stuff in the morning, is different to what happens after about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The body starts switching off different things and sets this factory up for going, we need to rest and we need to get some maintenance. But you're going, no, give me some caffeine, I'm staying up for another few hours. Tragic. You know, anybody who runs a factory like that are going to get more output for probably about a couple of weeks. And then, of course, the factory is going to die on them, isn't it? And they're going to be down for weeks in order to get expensive repairs done. Um, hormone imbalances, vitamin D, psychosocial stress, sleep apnea. So there are a few things that, that will contribute some of the major things. We think, we, well, we certainly know that they will increase free radical activity in the body, uh, largely driven by that inflammatory process. Can also happen in the brain. But the important thing is that there is a significant link between what's happening in the rest of the body and ultimately the contribution it's making to the brain. More of that happening within the brain, neuronal dysfunction. And you certainly can develop neuronal dysfunction before you end up with neuronal death. And that's important because we want to be able to bring it back. Now, if once the neurons have died, they're not coming back. But if we can get it early, you can then preserve that neuronal function. And we all know that the neurons generally aren't going to regenerate. So neurodegeneration, which is cell death, and of course you can neuronal dysfunction contributing through to that dementia <coughs> as well. So that is the background. If lifestyle shifts the biochemistry towards disease, and would you agree that that's possible? Lifestyle can certainly with an audience like this, lifestyle can shift you towards disease. And we all know that you don't develop Alzheimer's overnight. Same as you don't develop any of the cardiovascular diseases overnight, or stroke. So ultimately, this is a trajectory that this person, this patient, potentially yourselves, have been on for some time. At some point, you've diverged from health. You can either go this way and maintain yourself up until probably 110 years of age, or you can go this way and die of some kind of lifestyle-associated disease a lot earlier. And we know that 85 to 90% of the population will die of a lifestyle-associated disease in this country. I just thought I'd show you this one. This uh, was published in September of this year. Uh, Reversal of Cognitive Decline, a novel therapeutic program. He took nine Alzheimer's, or 10 Alzheimer's disease patients, nine of them, he got some great results. Using a multimodal intervention displayed a significant improvement in cognition after three to six hours. Now, wasn't reversing them back to their 30s, 
but got significant improvement, what did he do? And the results were maintained after 2.5 years. So the key elements, okay, forget about all of that, basically made them fast, making sure that they had a 12-hour fast overnight and that they ate three hours before going to bed. So in other words, it means that they finished their dinner by six, they were in bed by nine, they got up and had breakfast at six. Easy to do. Sounds like Ada Wifi. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. I, I wish we could do it here. I wish we could do it here. So that was the first thing. They optimised the diet, and the key thing that they did there was reduce their simple sugars. So basically they took them right out and said, if you want to get better, no simple sugars for you. So no desserts, no... Well, they can have desserts, but no refined sugars associated with that. And we know that that significantly impacts oxidative stress and inflammation, particularly with older people. Reduce their personalised stress. So in other words, they are able to, that should be a down arrow, it actually reduced their hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, that stress response, which we know drives up certain hormones which have impacts on things like cortisol and a whole host of other things, which actually drive a lot of oxidative inflammatory activity. Well, oxidative activity, it suppresses some of the immune system, but uh, they optimised their sleep so that they got at least eight hours per night. They gave them melatonin. Now, I don't want to go into all of this. You can buy melatonin over the counter in the US, which I think is a great thing. In Australia, you need to get it on prescription, but you guys can all prescribe it. The, um, not to yourself, of course, uh, but 0.5 milligrams. Now, that's quite a lot, and for an old person, that's probably okay. For a younger person, you would want to have significantly less. A younger person is probably going to produce bound about 0.1. If you get to bed by 9 o'clock, you will get your melatonin peak. The longer you stay awake, the lower your melatonin peak. So, anyway, they supplemented there. They gave them tryptophan. There's reason for that. Tryptophan actually produces both serotonin. It also produces a significant molecule called NAD, which we know is associated with driving what's called the longevity enzymes. Complicated business, but tryptophan is one of the least abundant amino acids in the body, and they made sure that they had enough of it. They made sure they could exclude sleep apnea, so any problems with their breathing, they made sure that they could get rid of it, simply because you have these intermittent anoxic events. So, I don't even know what time I'm supposed to finish now, probably. I won't tell you that story. But, you know, you really need to make sure that sleep apnea is not an issue. They exercised them for 36 to, uh, 30 to 60 minutes per day, four days a week. That's uh, pretty straightforward. Gave them little exercises to do for their brain made sure they had plenty of vitamin D3. And why K2? Does anybody know why K2? Vitamin K2. It keeps the calcium, and I'm glad there's at least one person who knew, because this is one of the critical things. You often see patients going on calcium supplements and then wondering why, and there's a paper that was actually just published just, uh, well, just this last week, showing that those on calcium supplements had greater risk of developing vascular-associated dementia. And the reason for that was, is that they found that the calcium deposits in the small blood vessels in the brain associated with some of those, so they're actually getting a little bit of va vascular infarcts in the brain and therefore getting some leakage. Because they probably had lower K2 and yet they're on calcium supplements. So they're actually ending up with, and with an oxidative stress background, you actually end up with calcium deposition. I mean, you actually turn your little endothelial cells into bone. Uh, not great. 
so acetylcholine, um, that's just for acetylcholine, and then you've got uh, DHA and EPA for omega-3. Um, they gave them resveratrol. We think there's better ways of doing it. But in any case, uh, they got great results. Nine out of ten increased. In fact, three of the patients who had left work, which were fairly young Alzheimer's, three of them were able to go back to work and were able to function normally at work. We actually have a grant very similar to this that we've just uh, developed to put in. Uh, we're going to do it slightly differently to this, uh, and, uh, but there are some key elements that, that are similar to them both. And very excited about it. And what's really fascinating, this is the first study of its kind. Ours would be the second one. And what is fascinating is that from that perspective, the reason why we even came up with it is because, of course, we were looking in the right direction. It's not that we're geniuses sitting there. It's just that on the basis of what we've been given as a platform for health, it made sense to look in this direction. And all the biochemistry seems to fit in with that. When we presented that to uh, uh, some of our colleagues at um, uh, one of the other big brain research institutes in Sydney, uh, they jumped all over it. Goes, oh, we'd love to be involved with that. This is what we should be doing. This, this just looks great. This is how we, we can do your imaging. And this is fantastic. Uh, and that is because we were looking, I think, by God's grace, in the right direction. So, but poor lifestyle choices don't, affect, don't just affect the brain. And of course, this is just to cap it off. We know the top three. Heart disease, we've got 20,000 deaths, 14% uh, of all deaths, strokes. Uh, and look, they're not unrelated, um, around nearly 11,000. And then dementia, uh, under it, at, at 10,000. And what is fascinating... And, and a discussion for another time, maybe around a lot more sort of technical elements. But this is just showing the blood vessels within the body. A lot of what you do, particularly, in, and we published this little paper, I don't think it's a particularly brilliant paper for some reasons, but, but it was the right kind of direction, where we actually did the ice cream study. Some of you have heard me talk about it. And we actually showed that you got an increase in oxidative damage within the blood vessels, so within the blood, within two to four hours after having a meal which was high in fat and high in sugar. Now, notice where the blood vessels, what they service. Massive amount up in the brain, but of course the kidneys and the lungs, of course, and then everywhere else in the body. And if you don't look after that bit, then a lot of the other bits aren't going to be serviced well. What were your cancer bits in that? Yeah, cancers actually come in um, uh, number four, I think, now. Um, it just depends, and mostly the... the um, uh, the lung types. Uh, it just depends on how you add the numbers up. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, your top five are all going to be the same. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, cancers of various types, and then Parkinson's, or at least Alzheimer's, stroke and, and heart disease. So the link there, lifestyle-driven uh, oxidative damage to blood vessels may underpin the connection to multiple diseases, which I think there's a growing consensus, uh, certainly in the research community, on that. So where is the, the final, and this is the second last slide, um, essentially, you're physically well when you're young, for the majority of the population. Depending on how you treat yourself, the high kilojoule diets, nutrient poor, low physical activity, poor sleep, etc. There'll be this subclinical oxidative inflammatory activity going on. The body's trying desperately to look after you, but it's having to work real hard. So things start getting damaged. Chronic tissue insult over years, blood vessels, multiple organ systems. Maybe the first thing you have is, it's probably, you know, a, 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 a diabetes or something early on. 
cardiovascular disease coming in, uh, etc. Accelerated damage then occurring within the brain. This is all occurring sort of around middle age. Then we get reduced tissue oxygenation resilience. Um, accelerated tissue damage now occurring in the brain. Degeneration of multiple organ systems. We know, you know, significant um, problems with kidneys and liver, etc. Neurodegeneration and dementia occurring in the older age group. Key thing is to assess and treat largely around lifestyle when you're young. And if you can get that culturally, then you're really on a winner. And look, if this were the health department for, for New South Wales or better still, the federal government, I would give almost exactly the same talk. Because basically that's what you want to change and you want to get that affected here unless you want to spend billions on your health budget unnecessarily. And then assess and treat lifestyle medicine here is probably the last chance. It's not the best. If you look after yourself here, then you're going to be looked after way up here. But at least this is probably your last good go. Leave it a little, little bit too much longer and there's going to be, unfortunately, not enough healthy tissue around to be able to work with. So if lifestyle shifts the biochemistry towards disease, then changing lifestyle should be remedial. That makes sense. And the question is, is lifestyle medicine an important part of not only your clinical practice? And I would give the same talk, regardless of whether I was talking to a uh, community GP uh, network. Uh, I've given some similar things, not exactly this. I probably would leave this one out. Uh, sorry, it's an important part of your own life. I would leave that one in. Uh, but I would probably leave this one out. This is E.G. White's Spiritual Gifts. Those who bring disease upon themselves by self-gratification have not healthy bodies and minds. They cannot weigh the evidence of truth and comprehend the requirements of God. This applies to us as much as it applies to anybody that we're serving. Our Saviour will not reach his arm low enough to raise such from their degraded state whilst, they're persisting, or whilst they persist in pursuing a course to sink themselves still lower. All they're required to do, so all are required to do what they can to preserve healthy bodies and soul and minds, uh, and sound minds. And, and I think if I can leave it there, because if every one of you in your clinical practice and clinical specialty, if you adopt great lifestyle practices, which is going to help yourself, then you'll be much more credible and also much more knowledgeable to be able to give that to your patients. I still think as a group we probably need to get the facilities right so that we can network well, so that we actually genuinely have some, you know, centres we can refer to, centres of excellence for lifestyle medicine and that type of thing. Um, but very happy to, to uh, be open for discussion around there. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.